0: So last week we started a new Bible study talking about Abraham, and we said that the story of Abraham is found in the book of Genesis, and Abraham is undoubtedly one of the most influential people in the history of the world, and so it's good for us to hear his story. You need the Bible study sheet, and you need your Bible this morning. To start with, just a little review, more than how many people around the world today call Abraham their father. Remember the number? Four billion people. More than four billion people today consider Abraham to be important to them. That's a lot. And we said, it's probably more than any other person or even any God. There's no religion or God that has four billion followers. More people consider Abraham important than anybody else in the history of the world. And 4 billion people would be about what percent of all people on earth? Over 50% of all people on earth consider themselves to have some connection with Abraham. Now last time during our class some of you asked some really good questions and I wasn't very happy with my answers. So there's a few things that I looked up after our class last time. I mentioned there's the three religions, the three main religions that consider Abraham their forefather. Can we just run down what those are again? Judaism, Judaism. Christianity, Christianity. Islam. Islam. One of the things I mentioned was just that Abraham was important to Islam, and somebody asked about, well, oh, where does he rank, and where does Abraham and Jesus, and where do they fit in in Islam? And so I looked that up, and what I seem to find is that Islam has five great prophets, and most of them will sound familiar to us. Alright, Noah, Abraham, Moses, Jesus, and Muhammad. And some places I found that they would list seven prophets, and they'd add on Adam, and I think Jacob in there too. And so it's just interesting that, well, these four, of course, we know quite a bit about from the Bible. I couldn't find any place that it seemed like they ranked them as far as, well, here's the You know, here they are in order of importance. Just here's five great prophets or seven great prophets, the only one that they're very clear about who is most important is Muhammad. Muhammad. And so Muhammad is by far the greatest and they make clear the last. So there's these different people leading up to Muhammad, these people are important, but Muhammad is, he's the great last final voice from Allah. Okay, but Abraham certainly on that list, and we're going to get to a story in a couple weeks, where you see where Islam gets its roots from. So, Muslims talk very favorably about Abraham. Yeah. It's very interesting that every single one of them is going to Yeah, every single one. I was, I was thinking, you know, I think there'd be another... Yeah, there would be like another person in here, or over here, just adding to the list of So when people talk about Islam, just in general terms, it seems like Muhammad took some ideas from Judaism, and some ideas from Christianity, and some ideas from his own culture, and then meshed them all together. But the Quran does talk a lot about all these biblical themes. The Quran even talks about Jesus, quite a bit. It just does not call Jesus God, and the savior of the world. Okay, so Muhammad was kind of I'm going to combine a bunch of different things together and then add in my own things and come up with something new. Okay.
1: Muhammad. First one. Muhammad, yeah.
0: Is he their Savior? No, no. So Islam emphasizes there is one God and that's Allah. So Islam would not call Muhammad their Savior. They don't have any Savior other than God, other than Allah. Okay, so in Christianity we have this concept of God as Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and Jesus is God who came to live with us. That's not a part of Islam. Islam is there is Allah, everyone needs to serve Allah, and Muhammad is his greatest prophet. Good question. Maybe we'll have to have a Bible study in Islam someday. But not today.
1: So, so that,
0: that's right. I don't, this isn't in order. Other than Muhammad is first. Otherwise, it's in chronological order. It's the order that it's in, right? So those are prophets in Islam. One of them would be Abraham. He's their their father too. Another question that came up that I, I I wasn't sure quite how to answer. This somebody asked what was the actual birth order of Noah's sons, and I wasn't confident. So I looked into that and. This seems to be the order of sons. So there's Shem, Ham, and Japheth, right? Which one's the oldest? Japheth. It seems like Japheth is the oldest. So if you look up Genesis 10, 21, it seems to say that Japheth is the oldest. The youngest is very clearly told us, Genesis 9:24. The youngest was Ham. The youngest was Ham and so who's left? Shem. Shem. So it seems like the order of Noah's sons are Japheth, Shem, Ham. And if you look at those passages, we see Japheth seems to be the oldest, Ham is definitely the youngest, and so Shem is in the middle, and of course, ironically, which is, is the son that the people of Israel actually come from? Shem. Shem. The one in the middle. And you know, God has, a, God has a history of taking people you wouldn't expect and showing them his grace and using them to do big things. Okay, so Japheth Shem Ham is the order of Noah's son. Next one, what did God call on Abraham to do? This is what we ended with last time. This is actually a review question for you. What did God tell Abraham to do? To leave this country and go. <laughs> To leave his country and go to a different one, and which one was he to go to? Yeah. That one. It's tough to call it Canaan yet. So the Bible calls it Canaan. Abraham is called to leave his country. First he's in Ur, then he's in Haran, and he's told to go to Canaan. And what did Abraham have to give up? Almost everything. Almost everything. To give up is his homeland, probably his culture. He gave up connections with a lot of relatives. There's even a little debate about one of the things he had to give up was the gods of his past. And so it seems like Abraham does believe in the true God, but we're told that his father and others seem to have idols. And so one of the things he's called to leave is the false religions. That even someone in his family had been involved with in the past. He's gonna to go to this new place, Canaan, and God's gonna bless him. Last thing, some somebody last week was making connections using the genealogies in the Bible. Okay, and you can actually make some pretty cool connections. Here is what looks like a very complicated chart. But it's not actually very complicated. These are the people listed in the Bible as one generation after another. Right, Adam, his son is Seth, his son is Enosh, his son is Cain, and so on. This shows the year that they were born, not in our years, but from the creation of the world. So Adam, year zero. the Bible tells us that when Seth was born, Adam was 130 years old. So Seth is year 130, and so on. So this year is the year since creation when that person's born. Does that make sense? And then this year would be the year, not in our years, but the year since creation when they die. Adam lives 930 years, and so he dies at year 930, and so on all the way down. Have you ever seen a chart like this? Right, so I didn't make this, I googled it, I got it, Google. but it, it seems to line up with the Bible. Right? Just notice a few things. First, we talked last time about how people lived a long time, and we say the Bible's true, we believe these people lived that long, we can't explain completely why they were able to other than the world was a better place then than it is now. And I guess it shouldn't surprise us that people's lifespan have gotten shorter, Right? It seems like with the Flood, that's when life really started to, to tone down. So after the Flood, a few people lived to be 400-something, and then we're getting down into the hundreds, and after Abraham, it's kind of like us, 70, 80, maybe 100 years. Okay, so you notice that as you see this chart. Last time, though, some of the connections that were made, is, it's interesting to see who was alive when who else was alive. All right? So now, if somebody lives 900 years, that's a long time. All right? So they're going to be alive when a lot of other people are born. All right? So, do you know who the oldest person in the history of the world was? The the Monsieur, you said that. <laughs> that, that guy, he's the oldest one. All right? So, do you notice when he dies, <laughs> i'm with what? Methuselah dies in the very year of the flood. And this is one of these interesting things in the Bible, and it's not at all explained. And so there's some people who say, well, that's God waited until faithful old Methuselah died and then he sent the flood. Other people say, well, maybe Methuselah wasn't a believer, and so maybe He sent the flood and Methuselah died. Although that seems unlikely. It seems like Methuselah is one of the people of God. But anyways, when you do the ages, Methuselah dies the very year of of the flood. Okay, If you think about how long Adam lived, notice Adam is alive all the way until after Noah's father is born. Okay, so Noah, he's born 1,056 years after Christ. So he's, Adam's dead by the time Noah's around. But Noah's father and Adam were alive at the same time. Okay, so I don't know what we, what we do with that information. It's not like they necessarily knew each other, right? The world's a big place. There would have been a lot of people, but... Right, if you go after the flood, so Noah dies in the year 2006. Look at when Abraham is born 2008, And so, just using these dates, it seems like Noah died two years before Abraham was born. Right? And so Shem, Shem is alive for almost the whole lifetime of Abraham. And again, did, did Abraham ever have the chance to go and talk with, we don't hear anything about that in the Bible, so it's not helpful for us to speculate, but... When I mean, you just put the ages of the people together, these are some of the interesting connections that people make, and maybe one of the reasons that God let people live so long is because it was important for the the truth of God's word to be passed down. Okay, do you think it may probably didn't take too many years after the flood, and people are like, "Yeah, that didn't happen," right? I think, like, no, no way, right? Eight people on a boat? I don't believe that. That's crazy. and well, Shem's around for quite a few years then. Like, when well, you know, if you traveled over to this country, you could talk to Shem and he'd tell you whether that really happened or not. And so maybe part of the long lifespan was there were eyewitnesses of the Garden of Eden and then of the flood on earth for a long time to be able to testify to those events, right? They didn't have printed books. Everybody didn't have the Bible on their phones. But they had people testifying to what God had done, Wasn't
1: there a death, or a who knows, was Noah's father that almost got out of the boat
0: for the ninth member, but he passed away, So that was, so if you're thinking, was there somebody who died right before the flood, that, that would be Methuselah, <laughs> it would be Noah's grandfather. Okay. And again, this is not, the Bible doesn't make this connection. But we're just adding up the years, and so Noah's grandfather, Methuselah, seems to die the very year that the flood happens. And these, you know, when you really study the Bible, and put the time into making connections, these are some of the things that you come up with. Any questions about all that? Just one. Yeah. Were, were there several that
1: were not actually uh, fathers
0: so, so this, is, this is why we have to be cautious. First of all, because the Bible doesn't spell out like this, right? It doesn't say, well, Noah was alive when... It doesn't talk like that. So we want to be careful not to draw too many conclusions when the Bible doesn't for itself. And then also in the Bible, when you hear someone is the son of, it's clear that that could mean grandson of, or even great-grandson of. And so we have to be a little careful to say, well, are these completely successive generations or is this, you know, you find in the Bible where sometimes someone's called a son when they're really a grandson, or someone's called a father when they're really the grandfather, the great grandfather. So we're careful. Maybe there are additional generations in here. And so that leads us to be a little cautious of, well, this is all running together and here's how it works. Does that make sense? My okay. yeah, like father Abraham. So my like father Abraham. Yeah. He's, so he's not actually your father, Sam? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> grandfather, right? He's your grandfather. Yeah, right, right. Right, so this this is an eager way of talking that to say, well, he's my father. There might be a couple generations in there too. Good point. Alright, let's get into Abraham's story. So we're going to be in... Genesis chapter 12 to start. So open up there. So at the start of Genesis chapter 12, last week, we heard about God's call for Abraham. Abraham was living in Haran, and God said, go into Canaan, and I'm going to bless you and make your name great, and you'll be a." blessing to all peoples, and we said the amazing thing was he went. It doesn't say Abraham questioned or, you know, looked at travel expenses or anything. He just went, and he obeyed God's word. And so now we're going to start having stories about Abraham and his family now that he's made it over toward Canaan. So the first thing we hear is Abram and Egypt. Okay, remember, Abram Abraham, it's the same guy. We'll get to his name change in a few chapters. So Genesis chapter 12, verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. And Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because of the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. Kind of a surprising story to start out with, right? Here's Abraham, following God's will, going to Canaan, and the first thing that happens is there's a famine, and so Abraham and his family decide to go to Egypt. Right? When Canaan had famines, why was it that there was always food in Egypt? Oh, God. Because of, I think somebody said it, but the close the there's, there's a river there, the Nile River, and the Nile River provided water and irrigation that people could always have food. So Egypt didn't depend on, it's gotta rain regularly for crops to grow. There's the Nile River, and in the Nile River Delta, you can have crops all the time because of the river. And so when there's a famine in Canaan, Let's go to Egypt. This sounds kind of familiar, right? What story later on in the Bible, who ends up going to Egypt? Jacob. Jacob, well, Jacob, Joseph ends up going there. And then Jacob, his father goes, because there's a famine, and they go to Egypt. And that time they stay 430 years, and it takes Moses and the 10 plagues to get them out. Okay, so this happens earlier with Abraham. It's a famine in Canaan, we're gonna go to Egypt. And they get there and Abraham has a big plan. Sometimes men have plans. Does that happen in life? He's got a plan. What's Abraham's plan? Save himself. I'm gonna say that my wife is my sister. And this is gonna go well. What do you think about that? So exactly, we just said that God tells Abraham, move across the world, and he goes. And we say, well, Abraham, he's a man of faith. And then the very next thing he does is totally faithless, right? Well, I don't know if God's going to take care of us in Egypt, so I'm going to come up with this really good plan, and that's going to take care of us. So he says, we're going to call my wife, my sister, and then it's going to go better. Okay, do you think it goes better when we make up plans? No. No. Alright, so let's see what happens. Well, here's just a map for us. So remember, Abraham and his father, they start out way over here in Ur, which would be in Iraq, kind of by the Persian Gulf today. They move all the way up to Haran. It's in Haran that Abraham's father dies. Then Abram comes all the way down here to Canaan. So this box would be the land of Canaan. There's a famine there, so they go all the way down here to Egypt. So, Abraham knows a thing or two about travel. So, are down here in Egypt. Let's keep reading. So, Genesis chapter 12, verse 14. When Abraham came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarah. So Pharaoh summoned Abram, What have you done to me? He said, Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. So here's how it goes. They get to Egypt. Everyone notices Sarah is very beautiful. So Pharaoh decides to take her into his palace. One thing that's that's interesting is: do you know how old Sarah was at this time? If you look up Genesis 12:4, it'll tell you how old Abraham was. You know how old Abraham was? Seventy five. Seventy-five. And if you were to look up Genesis seventeen, seventeen, it would tell you that Abraham is how many years older than Sarah? Ten. Ten years. So oof, we do some math. She's sixty-five years old. Okay, which is just kind of a an interesting thing that she was considered strikingly beautiful when she was sixty-five years old. Some of you are about sixty-five years old. You don't have to feel like you're old, time has passed you by, and so at 65, Sarah is still beautiful, right, and so Pharaoh takes her in, and don't don't of course think like Pharaoh had one wife, and it's Sarah, right, think of this ancient world where kings collect this harem, it's called, beautiful women, Uh, there's another beautiful woman, She she should come and be a part of my group. Okay. not a good thing of course for Sarai but because Sarai seems to be Abram's sister what does Abram get out of it? she all him sorts of him. stuff yeah. okay often holy books treat their main characters like heroes why does the Bible tell us about Abraham's sin let us know that yeah to let us know we're no better than Abraham and Abraham's no better than us. Right. And this is, this is really a striking feature of the Bible all the way through that usually when there's like a legend about great heroes, they don't it's look, they don't look at all these great things that they did or if something bad, habits. it's not their fault, right? Somebody else does this bad thing to them. And when you read through the Bible over and over again, it's here's this, this person of faith and then they did this. And here's this person of faith. And then they do this. Why does the Bible do that? Because we're all sinners and we need a Savior. We're all sinners and we need a Savior. And who's really the hero of the Bible? Jesus. Jesus. God. God is. And then God through Jesus when he comes to earth. And so just when you read the Bible, don't, don't be surprised by this. And remind yourself the real hero is God. God's the hero. So here's Abraham, this man of faith. And he had moments in his life when he did really stupid, simple things. We should not raise him above and put him on a pedestal
1: for any reason.
0: So we shouldn't raise him up and put him on a pedestal. Other than how God used him, which was special. But just as a human being, it wasn't like he was some superhuman. We shouldn't be praying to him or venerating him. We just want to know his story. Because that's the story that God gives to us. Okay, so it's, it's kind of hard as you go through the Bible to find somebody who we don't hear about them committing big sins. You know? So after Abraham we're going to hear about Jacob. And remember Jacob? He's the one who steals his brother's birthright by lying to his father and then runs away and then he ends up marrying two different women and then taking their maidservants too and he's just like, wow, this is kind of messed up. Right? And you get to Moses, and Moses kills an Egyptian and has to flee for his life, and later on God tells Moses to speak to a rock, and he hits the rock with his staff because he's so mad, and God won't let him go into the promised land. And then you get to King David, who's supposed to be this man after God's own heart, and he commits adultery and has somebody murdered, and his family's just a complete mess, and he just go down the line, and you're like, wow, it just seems like everybody's sinful. And, yeah, that's what the Bible's trying to tell us. Okay, people aren't great because they're so great, it's because God and His grace uses them to do big things. Yeah, yeah. that's what I was going to say, but it always shows sure God's grace. It shows God's grace. Yeah. Yeah. And how does this story, thanks for the segment, again, how does this story <laughs> illustrate the grace of God? So Abraham lies, really puts his wife in a bad situation. And if I were God, I'd be like, what can I do to wake Abraham up? Except what does God do? He blesses him. He blesses him. So in spite of Abraham's sin, in spite of his foolish decisions, God blesses him. Just that verse, right? He treated Abram well for their sake. Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants and camels. <clears throat> Just Abraham sins and yet God still blesses him. It's the grace of God. Denise?
1: I find it amazing that after Pharaoh discovers what's going on and he says, okay, get out of here. And it's not like you take your family and run. Mm-hmm. He gives them everything. It and is. lets him leave with all his possessions
0: and everything. And the truth is, in this story, it seems like Pharaoh is the honorable one, right? Mm-hmm. And so Pharaoh, when he discovers it, well, this lady is someone's wife. I'm going to give her back. and Yeah, I would have taken everything back, right? Mm-hmm. Put Abram in jail or something like that. And he said, all right, you just go. Take it all. Just go. And God, in his grace, is blessing Abraham, even though he doesn't deserve it. So, very disagree. Being a person of faith means you trust in God in every situation. You should, but you don't. Right? You should, but you don't. And doesn't this happen in your life that you're surprised at how you respond to certain situations? It never ceases to amaze me. Like you get in a situation and I respond in such an awful way sometimes. Right? I doubt, I get worried, maybe I say or do just something that's terribly wrong. And, like, why am I doing this? And you think, why am I doing that? I'm a sinner. Because I'm a sinner with a sinful nature. And so being a believer in Jesus doesn't mean that I never sin again. And I don't make bad decisions. I don't make bad choices. And every time that I sin, what do I need? I need forgiveness in Jesus all the time. I need forgiveness in Jesus. Oops. How about the last one here? Why is it so much easier to devise our own often foolish plans than to trust in God? We want to feel in control. Good. We want to feel in control. We want to do it on our own. We want to do it instantly. Oh, excellent. We want to do it instantly. Our plans usually involve something happening now. And God's plans are, just wait a little while. No, yes. Good. Other reasons? Instant gratification. And I think, you know, the Bible's challenged us. It's always that we, we don't trust in God the way that we think that we do sometimes. Right? Yeah, we don't want to humble ourselves. We don't want to humble ourselves. So God does things in our lives, doesn't he? Just to teach over and over again. You're not in control. You need to trust in me. And that's a good thing. Because my plans are going to work out better than your plans. You wonder if Abraham walked away learning that lesson. Huh. That wasn't a good thing for me to do my own thing. God's plans are going to work out better than my plans. Any questions about this story? So just a a little foreshadowing. Ironically, it's going to happen again. Later on, Abram's going to do the same thing. He's going to call his wife and sister again. We'll have to ask him, what? What? I know, why does he do it again? Let's say that for another day. Alright, let's keep moving. Next chapter. Genesis chapter 13. Now we hear about Abram and... Lot. Okay, before we read this, you remember who Lot is? Nephew. Abram's nephew. And, okay, Lot's father had died. So it seems like this is why Lot's hanging around Abraham. Because Lot's father has died. Abram's kind of taking an end, almost like he's his son. So Genesis 13. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had. And Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. And the Negev, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier. And where he had built it, he had first built an altar. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. But the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abram's herders and Lot's. The Canaanites and Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. So Abram said to Lot, Let's not have any quarreling between you and me, or between your herders and mine, for we are close relatives. Is not the whole land before you? Let's park company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. So they go back to the land of Canaan. We hear about their movements. They're moving around different places. Um, on your study sheet, I think I have it coming up here. There's a map. This is Canaan. We hear about these two cities, Bethel and Ai. And so they're right here next to each other, kind of right smack in the middle of Canaan. And there's a big problem. What's the problem? Not food for person. Yeah. There's not enough food for all the livestock. What? Another way to say it would be that Abraham and Lot were too rich. Right? God blessed them so much that they couldn't keep living together. So, what grace does Abraham show to his nephew Lot? He wants some shoes. Right, now if you were just an observer of this situation You've got Abraham Kind of the patriarch called by God To move to this land And then you've got his nephew just hanging along If they're going to split Who should make all the decisions? Abraham, Abraham. Right, He had every right to say Alright Lot You go over here, I'll go over here But yet Abraham says to Lot You choose anything you want You pick the best land I'll take the whatever's left over What do you think enabled Abraham to sin? Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Okay, I think we're going to see this in Abraham, this kind of bouncing back and forth between this strong faith and doubts, just like you and me. So maybe after his experience in Egypt, he's coming out thinking, wow, God really has a plan for me. God really has this under control. I'm going to trust in him. you, You go wherever you want to. I know God's going to take care of me. Okay, so I think it's a, it's a beautiful thing, Abraham does. Well, you can choose. So let's hear what Lot chooses. Chapter, uh, chapter 13, verse 10. Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan toward Zoar was well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had parted from him, Look around from where you are to the north and the south, to the east and the west, all the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. So Abraham went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he pitched his tents. There he built an altar to the Lord. So we hear about Abraham and Lot parting ways. So look again at at the map. So, they're in right here in the center, Bethel and Ai. And what area does Lot choose? Toward the Jordan River. So, remember in Canaan, the Jordan River runs north to south, all along the eastern border. And Lot says, hey, you know that area of the Jordan River, that's kind of like Egypt right? there's this constant river flowing there's places for crops it's fertile And also along the, that Jordan River seems to be where the biggest city went which makes sense right people put cities where there's a good water source and so there's cities there like Sodom and later on the city of Jericho is there by the Jordan River and so Lot says hey I, I can choose anywhere I want to I wanna go to the area that's got a nice river, it's nice and fertile, and there's big cities I can hang out in the cities, and that's where I'm gonna go. And Abraham, he's left with what's just left in the middle of the country, so we're told he goes down here to Hebron, and that's where he lives, and what does Abraham live in? A tent, his whole life, Abraham just lives in a tent. never has a city never has a solid house, he's just always living in tents and so Lot says I'm going to choose the city this fertile place and alright Abraham, I'm just going to go live in my tent here in the countryside. Okay. Now let's think a little bit about Lot's decision. What factors seem to be most important to Lot in deciding where to live? What's that? Food. Food the best. Where can I have the most things? Where can I be the most prosperous? Okay, I don't know that we necessarily blame him for that. Somebody says look out over the land and pick where you want to live. Probably would pick the place where there's a river and fertile land and looks the best. What did Lot forget to consider in deciding on the best place for his family? Who his neighbors were. Who his neighbors were. That's a good way to put it. Okay. so right here in Genesis chapter 13 we, we hear about Sodom in a couple different ways at the end of verse 10 there's this kind of little parenthetical phrase this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah kind of this you know, this morning you know what happens to Sodom and Gomorrah and then there's verse 13 now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord And so it seems like what Law didn't take into consideration was, well, what are the people of this area like? What's the culture of this place like? How might this area actually impact my family and my future children? And it seems like he made his decision based on where can I have the most prosperity, not where might I have the the best chance to keep believing in, in the Lord? Understand that, Sam? The statement, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and
1: Gomorrah, was that in the original?
0: It was, yeah, it was. So the fact that it's right there in the text, and it was part of the original. Everybody knew about it already. So so we're going to hear about Sodom and Gomorrah in just a couple chapters. So if you're reading Genesis, you, you hear about Sodom and Gomorrah. It, it seems like when God destroyed those cities, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but I don't want to spoil it for you. Sodom and Gomorrah are going to get burned down with sulfur and fire from heaven. It seemed like that must have had an impact on the actual land, the geography. And so as it's saying, well, Lot's going to this area and it's really well watered and fertile. It's like the Garden of the Lord. It's like the Garden of Eden. And it's almost like, as Moses is writing this, somebody in Moses' day might say, but it's not that way now. And well, Well, this was before, this was before the fire fell from heaven. And something must have changed when that happened. So remember, this is before that happened. This was really a fertile place where everybody wanted to live. Yeah. But did Lot know anything about
1: these cities? He just knew this looked good. Wouldn't he have had to send somebody there
0: to find out how these people were Right, so did Lot know anything about this? And that's a good question. I don't think that we can let him completely off the hook. Right, so he makes his decision and then right there we're told verse 13, the people of Sodom are wicked and sinning greatly against the Lord. In a few chapters when we get to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, we hear God says, God himself says, the outcry of these cities is so great. Everybody knows that these cities are, I mean every city is sinful, right? Every group of people is, but there's something about these places that they're just they're well known to be places that that don't worship God. And so I, I don't think we can let walk completely off the hook. Like the the well, it was the outcry to the Lord. You're right. It just seems like the reputation of... We're getting ahead of ourselves. When God tells Abraham, I'm going to destroy these cities, he doesn't say, why? Well, all right, you're going to. But if there's 50 righteous people there, will you save it? So it seems Abraham was well aware... That these were not good places for someone who's a believer in God to live. No, you're blaming Abraham. <laughs> Abraham should have warned Lot. Why don't we just blame Lot? It seems like he's the one responsible for this. Right. Just to think about this today. What often motivates our decisions when it comes to where to live? To just you know, keep this in mind. You need to have a job, you need to provide for your family. You know, some of you have moved here because you needed to. I'm thankful that you're here. Okay? What factors does the Bible encourage us to consider when deciding where to live? Do they have water? Here? Do, do they have water? That would be a good thing to consider. So we need to live in a place that there's resources that can sustain us. Emily and I were in Death Valley. On our trip earlier this summer, Death Valley is very dry and hot, and there's like a little visitor center, and it had some exhibits. And one of the exhibits, there was a quote, and the quote said, there is not a lack of water in Death Valley. There is just enough water for every rock and every plant that lives here. There is not enough water in Death Valley to put a city here. I just thought that was kind of wise know, Every place has exactly the amount of water that that place needs. But not every place is the right place to put a big city and have lots of people live. And that's what we like to do in America, (laughs) is pick a nice place in the middle of the desert and then say, let's have everybody move there, right? Phoenix is the fastest growing city in the United States and they don't really have any water there. So good point, we should look for a place. (laughs) that has water. Other things that the Bible would want us to consider that maybe Lot didn't consider when he made his choice? Spiritual health. What's the spiritual health of this place? and How might this impact my family? I can't can't see the future, but I can think about those things. Maybe to ask, are there there Christian churches there? Is there a, a church that I could go to? Is there a Wells church? For me to join. When, when, people, when people have an opportunity that there's multiple options, I would hope that Christians would think this true. Not just, well, where might I make the most money? Or where is there the coolest scenery around? But where's a place where I can see God providing for me and I can see this being a blessing to our spiritual health? It does happen as a pastor, you know, people move, and I know people move, and I understand that. But it's happened in my ministry that people will move, and they'll move to a place where there's just no church. And then, you know, I'll reach out to them. Sometimes years later, it's, well, if you found a church? Well, there's just no church here in And it was, what am I supposed to say? You know? Why did you move there? <laughs> right? This is going to impact you that, you know, if you have options, do consider where, where is there a place I can go to church? Because that's important to me. Okay, even, you know, it impacts even, say, college students. You know, anytime you're thinking, I'm going to move to a different place, and I have different options I can go to, make sure toward the top of that list is, and if I go here, maybe it's for four years of school, am I still going to be able to be a part of a church regularly? This is really important. It really affects you if you're in the military. Military too. Yeah. You don't have a choice. Sometimes you don't have a choice. Yeah. And that's something to think through. Good. And he's saying okay. that, all well,
1: Ron met Bronco. And the way I heard the story, he was an engineer, I guess. And they are in Milwaukee, and I think his company sent him down here, I'm not certain. Mm-hmm. But that's how they ended up down here, I think. And for Badger Meter right there, 15th and South Sheridan, I'd go buy it every time I go home. Mm-hmm. Anyway, bottom line is, they came in about 72. They were just starting up at the funeral place. They weren't even on 31st Street yet. And so they have to come to a big old Wells church in Milwaukee to start a church. And they're lucky to have that even, I guess. So even the roots of our own church
0: is from people from other places who moved here and said we really want there to be a Lutheran church, and that's how our church started. And some of you were part of that. And some of you moved here and helped build up our church many years ago. So that's the other option, if you move to a place there isn't a church, then. Be one of the people that's going to start a new church. And our Wisconsin said is always looking to start new churches. We want to start 10 new churches every year. And as I hear right now, what we're missing is groups of people wanting to start churches. We have resources to do it. We need to have people willing to, to go through that. We're going to read one more story. Let's keep going to chapter 14. this chapter, we hear about a big battle, right? These first 12 verses have a lot of names, so let's go through it. Chapter 14. At the time when Amraphel was king of Shinar, Ariah, king of Alasar, Kenilamor king of Elam, and Tidal king of Goyim, these kings went to war against Bera king of Sodom, Bersha king of Gomorrah, Shinab king of Abba, Shameber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor. All these latter kings joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Dead Sea Valley. For twelve years they had been subject to Kedorlaomer, but in the four- thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedorlaomer and the kings allied with him went out and defeated the Rephaites in Ashtarath Karneum, the Zuzites in Ham, the Emites in Sheva Kiriasim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran, near the desert. Then they turned back and went to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and they conquered the whole territory of the Amalekites, as well as the Amorites, who were living in Hazza's own Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, Marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Sidim against Teraharimor, king of Elam, Taino, king of Goim, and Raphu, king of Shinar, and Ariach, king of Elasar. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and the rest fled to the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, and they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. Do you follow all that? Will you read it, again? just going to ask if any of you want to read it. <laughs> maybe one <laughs> of <why laughs> you want to read it this time. No, my dad said, I've been given your degree. at have been like always, here's another example to say the Bible is real history. Right? This is real history. It's making a point. And so it doesn't just say, Hey, there was a battle. It's just there's these five kings from these very distinct places, and four kings from these places, and the four kings rebel against the five kings, and so the five kings come to attack them, and on the way they defeat everybody else in their path, and then they finally meet near the Dead Sea. And there's tar pits, and the, the five kings they lose, and as they're fleeing, they fall into the tar pits. Yeah. And you see, this is real history. All right, so there's these four kings by, led by Ketolahor. They seem to be coming into Canaan from, I don't expect you to pick this out, but it seems like they're coming from the area of Babylon. When you hear the name Shinar, so... And Raphael is king of Shinar, that, That's over by Babylon. So over like by Iraq. Where Abraham had originally been. And so they're coming over. There's four kings fighting against five kings. Which side won? Four kings. The four kings win. So the four kings led by ketel defeat the five kings. Okay? So, Sodom and Gomorrah are one of the five kings. They lose. Knowing what we know about Sodom and Gomorrah, what would we have said when we heard they lost the battle?
1: Woohoo! Great, right?
0: right? right. Yes, we got one. God won and to lose. Okay, that's so what we would have said. Right. so here's a map. Of, so, again, Babylon is over here. Remember there's this fertile crescent that goes like this. You're going to travel. You go in like a moon shape. So these kings are all coming from over here. But they come down, here's all these places mentioned Ashtarath, Carnium, Ham. They come all the way down here, then they make their way back up here, and then there's this battle with Sodom and Gomorrah by the Dead Sea. And these four kings from far away, they win the battle. They're subjecting more people to their power. And here's where Abraham comes in. So verse 13. A man who had escaped came and reported this to Abram, the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, a brother of Escol and Aner, all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the three hundred eighteen trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Holon north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. After Abram returned from defeating Kerolomer and the king's alley with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaba, that is the king's valley. So we just said, you know, if we hear that Sodom and Gomorrah lose a battle, we'd kind of be like, yeah, we've got what they deserved. Instead, what does Abraham do? Goes to rescue him. He goes to rescue him. Right? Just one side note. There's a word in verse 13 that's used for the first time in the Bible. Hebrew. Hebrew. So this is the first time. Abram is called the Hebrew. And it's the first time this word is used, so the Hebrews are they're the descendants of Abraham.
1: Yeah. Where does the word Hebrew come from? I mean, you can see other countries and what they call their people. Where does they? Great the question. Is? So there's a little
0: bit of discussion about the, the etymology, the background of the word Hebrew. Um, we mentioned last time that one of the suggestions in Abraham's family tree, there's a man named Eber. And so one of the best suggestions is that the word Hebrew comes from Eber. So the descendants of Eber are the Hebrews. And the word Eber, there's a a word like that in Hebrew, and it it means like to cross over or to pass over. And so part of it seemed like, well, the Hebrews, they're these people who are crossing over from somewhere else. And that certainly fits with Abraham's story, right? They're moving from one place far over, and the Hebrews, they're the, the descendants of Eber, and they're the ones crossing over from a different place. Does that help? Great question.
1: So when did Abraham
0: suddenly become a military strategist? Wow, this is what, so all of a sudden, there's this guy who just moves all over the place, and now he's a military general, and a really good one at that, right? So this is the question, how could Abraham possibly win the victory with just a man in his own household? What's amazing is he doesn't, like, rally different you know, kings today, he goes around all the cities and gets an army together. He just, in his own household, gathers his trained soldiers. And how many does he have? 318. 318. That is a lot of people. And so when we hear Abraham's traveling around with his household, how many people are there probably involved in this? Uh, 320. <laughs> <laughs> so there's at least 320 if there's three hundred eighteen men in Abram and Sarah, we assume that these three hundred eighteen men, many of them have wives and families and children. It says that they were born in his household, so it's not like he's you know he's bought people or paid people. These are this is his his family really in the way that it worked in those days. So he had three hundred eighteen men. Still, that doesn't seem like a lot. If there's five, four kings who've traveled across the world and defeated everybody else. And so how does he actually defeat them? The Lord. Lord. It's it's God. Right? Right. It's God. It's the Lord. So on the list of things God uses Abraham to do, one of them is be a great general who wins a really major world victory and frees the people of Canaan from oppression by these kings from from Babylon. So a couple weeks ago we went on a little trip to San Antonio and we went to the Alamo and you hear the story of the Alamo, how these few soldiers fight off, but of course it's sad thing, at the Alamo they lose, right? They all die. But then what's amazing is after the Alamo, then there's another battle, the Battle of San Jacinto, where Sam Houston leads what's left of the Texans against the Mexican Army and they win! And Texas wins its independence and that story was told at the one. In that battle, the Battle of San Jacinto, it's estimated that 600 Mexican soldiers died. And do you know how many Texans died? Twelve. Nine. And you just wonder, like, how is that possible, right? You know, and so they're both fighting with guns, and you actually have a trained army against just, you know, these. Guys to put together defending their state, and, and so there was, in, in real history, there was a battle where 600 people died on one side and nine died on the other, and if that happens just in, you know, United States history, to hear in the Bible that God uses a small force to win a big victory, it's God's
1: power, God's grace. No, the rest of that story is simple. <coughs> Santa uh, messed up. He should have went after Sam Houston's break-time woman. Mm-hmm. And he could have beaten him. And instead he uh, uh, he thought Sam Houston, 12 days he get his army on him.
0: So it's a lot more of a story that goes behind it. And,
1: and Terry, knows it? And, and He'll tell it to me. It's amazing. <clears throat> he lost a thousand men at the old they killed 182, mm-hmm. so he lost five men every time they killed. Yeah. Two,
0: uh, in battles, it's not <laughs> it's not always even on both sides. Yeah, right. he was uh, he was disgraced, man, yeah. because he he uh, lost so
1: many men at the right. battle. battle. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Then you add in here with Abraham, we've got God as a part of it, and we can understand that. Well, what's kind of amazing is, some of you like maps, some of you don't, but remember, they're way down here by the Dead Sea. We're told that Abram, as he fights, he goes way up to Dan, which is the northernmost city in the country of Israel, and then he chases them way up to Hoba, which is by Damascus. Damascus is in Syria, it's in a whole different country. And so when you think about what Abram does, not only does he raise up this among his own family. But he actually travels across the entire country. And he ends up in a whole different country. And he routes them and he chases them and this is just a an incredible victory. So this means a little more to me. I was in Israel once and we went to Dan. And Dan is famous because it was one of the places where they set up a golden calf, which is a sad, bad thing. but. Israelites worshipped a golden cap, and they actually have found the place where that golden cap was, like the actual footings of the altar, the golden cap is there in Dan, but also in Dan, they found the ancient gate of the city, like the actual gate from even before the time of Abraham, and so you go there, and they make a big deal of, well this gate, Abraham walked. And you're kind of like, when would that have happened? Like, And then they show you the story. Well, look, Abraham went through Dan as he chased this army. and So this gate was here in 2000 B.C. Abraham must have walked. So I have seen a gate that Abraham walked under. <laughs> Isn't that cool? We got to finish. Oh, we just maybe should answer this one. Explain this. Believers in God are a blessing to the society in which they live. So just think, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah deserve to be destroyed in this battle. Why are they saved? Because of faith. Because Lot was there. Just the presence of Lot and his family allowed the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and their wicked cities to be saved. And the Bible makes this point a number of times that God's people, God's people are a blessing to the place that they live. And this is good. Right? We've got to see how it ends. We're to verse 18. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Bless me, Abram, by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, And praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, With raised hand I have sworn an oath to the Lord, God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me to Aner, Ashkel, and Mary. Let them have their share. So the end of this strange battle is even stranger because this guy shows up named Melchizedek. What is strange about the description of Melchizedek? He's a priest and a king. So... He's a priest of God Most High. And you you wonder, what does that mean? Is he really a priest of the, the one true God who's not connected at all to Abraham? And then it says he's a king. He's a king and a priest, which is a very odd combination, which ironically is what our whole service is about today. Just completely by chance. But Melchizedek is a king and a priest at the same time Which makes us think of what other person who is a king and a priest at the same time? Jesus. Jesus, And so this this kind of strange, shadowy figure, Melchizedek, it seems like he kind of is a figure, a picture of, gee, I'm not saying he is Jesus, he's a historical person, but he makes us think about Jesus. Where is Salem? Jerusalem. You know it by the name Jerusalem. So this guy, not only is he a priest of God Most High, he's the king of Jerusalem. Why haven't we heard about Jerusalem as we've been reading Genesis? It's not big yet. I don't know if we'd say it's not big yet. Who doesn't control it yet? The Israelites. So Jerusalem exists even way back at the time of Abraham. It just wasn't an Israelite city. right? And so here this priest king of Jerusalem comes out to Abraham and what does Abraham give to him? He gives him an offering. How much does he give him? 10%. 10%. What does this kind of make us think of? Tithing. And especially giving our offerings to God. And so here just out of the blue, this guy shows up who happens to be the king of Jerusalem and the priest of God Most High and Abraham, right now, without even thinking about it, says, I'm going to give you 10% of the things that I have, and all of this makes us think about Jesus, and we don't have time at this moment, but if you want to do some study during the week, read the book the, in Hebrews, in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7 is all about how Jesus is like Melchizedek, except Benedict. And so this man in the Old Testament, this priest-king from Jerusalem, in the Bible, makes people think about Jesus, who is a king and a priest, and to whom we give our offerings and our allegiance. Right? Why did Abraham refuse to receive any of the plunder from the battle? The king of Sodom comes and says, just let me have my people back and have everything else. And Abraham says, no. He says, I'm not going to let the king of Sodom say that he made me rich. This kind of goes into, you know, what kind of reputation did Sodom have? And Abraham, no, it's not the king of Sodom who made me rich. Who did Abraham want people to know made him rich? Good, right. What I have comes from God, right? Just give me give me back my men and let the, the other fighters with me, they can take their share. I don't have to speak for them. I'm not taking anything from you. You take all your stuff back. Give it. Well, that question might have been it before. It wasn't time yet. It wasn't
1: time yet. I mean, that's what I take it as, right? Yeah. It wasn't time yet. Wait. Yeah. wait.
0: And do you know who was it who who finally captured Jerusalem for the Israelites? King David, King David, right? All right, here we go. When did David live? A thousand BC. When did Abraham live? Two thousand BC. So it's a whole thousand years that Jerusalem is going to be a city, not connected with God's people until David finally conquers it, a thousand years later. And so, just the history of Jerusalem is pretty fascinating. It wasn't God's timing. Good question. Denise?
1: So what does the J-E-R-U mean when you put it together with Salem? That is, <laughs> <Sorry. an excellent, laughs> that is an excellent question.
0: I'm not sure. I'll put that up for you. Maybe that'll be our review question next time. Next <laughs> what does Jeru add to Salem? Salem means peace. Peace. Like shalom. You hear the word shalom? shalom. Peace. But what is the Jeru add? I'll have to look at it. Good question. Let's say it first. Jesus, it really is amazing to study your word and to see all these different stories and how they apply to us. Even though he was a, a faithful man, Abraham still sinned, just like we do. He made up foolish plans. He doubted you, just like we do. And yet you forgave him and you blessed him. And we're thankful that you do the same thing to us. You gave Abraham so much grace that he gave grace to others. He let Lot choose where he was going to live, trusting in you, and give us that same confidence to be gracious and generous to others, knowing that you're going to provide for us. Finally, when he needed it, you even allowed Abraham to be an army commander, and you won victories for him. Lord, protect us and provide for us, and we pray, Lord, that you give us a a faith, that trust in you in every situation. Finally, this guy shows up, Melchizedek, It's kind of strange. And yet, the Bible tells us that he makes us think of you. In our service today, we're going to hear about how you, Jesus, are our priest and our king. Help us to grow in our appreciation for what you've done for us and our faith in you. In your name we pray. Amen.